0: Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Mandy Hiscox first got involved in left-wing activism through the joys of punk rock.
2: I remember in high school, I used to go to a lot of punk shows. And so they would always have these tables at the back of the shows with, like, anti-racist material and a lot of, like, animal rights stuff. Back when you could still mosh and you didn't have to stand still at punk shows.
1: And then in the mid-90s, she moved from Ottawa to Guelph, Ontario to go to university.
2: When I arrived, it was a group called the New Socialists, and they were very, they were like socialism from below. We would all gleefully spend hours in anti-oppression training and like in reading groups and stuff like that while we were also students. And then that crew sort of graduated and moved away. And then we had for a long time, we had like a very much more anarchist organizing community. In
1: 1999, she went to Seattle to join the massive protests against the World Trade Organization.
3: The city of Seattle has literally been overrun by marchers.
0: Things started to
4: turn violent. There was a lot of pushing and shoving. The protesters were getting shoved to the ground by riot police. And then
2: everyone. Started... I just remember like the gas and like running from concussion grenades and all of the sort of the stuff that you see on the footage and everything. It was the first time that I actually felt that somebody might get killed here. Like this is these cops are so dangerous. And like as a kind of like white. You know, middle-class person. That had never occurred to me before, even though I had been arrested a whole bunch of times.
1: Over the years, she was arrested at a number of protests and occupations. She was arrested at the so-called seven-year squat in Ottawa, an occupation aimed at more affordable housing. She was involved in causes ranging from indigenous solidarity to tenants' rights to anti-capitalist work. By 2009, Mandy was a seasoned activist and still living in Guelph. That year, Brenda Doherty came to town.
2: I know that she went to a few meetings on campus. We throw these meetings all the time. Anyone can come, right? And then eventually she got involved in a group called Guts, the Guelph Union of Tenants and Supporters. And at the time, they were doing dinners. So they would make dinner and serve it on a sidewalk in downtown Guelph for people who needed food. She was very helpful and kind of, like, on the ball, like, that did the stuff that she said she was going to do. It's just like anyone who comes in to organizing. You show up at a meeting, you offer to do some tasks, then you do them, and people are like, oh, you did that, (laughs) you know? And then you just kind of get involved.
1: Like Mandy, Brenda was older than most of the student activists.
2: She had a whole backstory of coming out of this abusive relationship And, you know, finally being free to do the things that she wanted to do, which was organizing. And she had kind of like a superficial understanding of things, which we all sort of chalked up to the fact that she's just like a person who is a little bit older, who is coming to this stuff at a later time in her life. And that's fine.
1: Mandy remembers a few things odd about Brenda. The way she dressed, for
2: instance. She dressed in really bright colors, you know, like kind of like short skirts, sort of punk. She often had like two ponytails in her hair. It kind of felt
1: like she was wearing an activist costume, which was understandable because Brenda was pretty new to this after all.
2: I feel like she came off as somebody who was like very newly exposed to something awesome and just went like all in, you know, <laughs> she was like, this is amazing and just got really excited.
1: Eventually, Brenda started to get involved in planning protests for the G20 summit, which was scheduled to take place in Toronto in the summer of 2010. The G20 is a forum where the leaders of the world's richest countries gather to discuss global issues. Like the WTO or the IMF or Davos, the G20 is viewed by many as an emblem of global inequality and corporate hegemony. A large number of groups were planning actions at the event, protesting everything from globalization to the war on terror to resource extraction. And at the time, multiple police forces were working in concert to put together a massive security operation for the G20. And Mandy remembers that her and her friends used to laugh about it and say that the police were keeping close tabs on them.
2: I remember at one point there was a camera at the end of our street that had been mounted on a building. And we would joke, you know, about, ah oh, ha-ha, see, this is watching us. But I don't recall that for me it was ever actually, like, that I ever really thought that. I would kind of be like, oh, calm down. You know, like, they have bigger things to do than, like, little old us.
1: As the G20 drew closer, a room opened up in Mandy's house, and Brenda, who needed a place to stay, moved in.
2: She subletted a room, I think, for like a couple of weeks in June. And one of the first things she did was she painted a wall bright pink and she painted a big black anarchy sign on it. I feel like I might have done that to my wall when I was like 14 or 15, (laughs) you know, like to annoy my parents or something.
1: Mandy was spending more and more time in Toronto getting ready for the G20, so she didn't see her new roommate very often. But she does have a few nice memories of her.
2: I do have a photograph somewhere of her and me and a bunch of friends hanging out watching Star Trek in our living room. I also have a memory of spending some time outside with her at night with flashlights on our heads looking for a cat that had escaped from the house who was not supposed to go outside.
1: They wouldn't stay roommates for very long. On the weekend of the G20, Mandy Hiscox was arrested at gunpoint while staying with a friend in Toronto. She was one of 17 people charged with conspiracy. It turns out that the police had been watching her carefully. The surveillance camera that Mandy and her friends used to joke about, it was the cops. And the quiet, good-natured activist who had moved into her home, who had painted her wall bright pink with a big anarchy symbol sprayed on top, she was an undercover Ontario provincial police officer sent to spy on her. We remember the G20 for the police kettles and the mass arrests and the beatings. But well before the summit even took place, Canada's security establishment was already pushing the boundaries of acceptable policing. Hundreds of millions of dollars were spent securing the event, and a dozen undercover agents were deployed to infiltrate civil society groups and activist networks across the country. It was all part of one of the biggest undercover operations in Canadian history. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canadaland,
5: this is Commons. This show is sponsored by Better Help, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And Better Help is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself With more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand.
2: Botox Cosmetic, out toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.
0: For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com dot com or call eight seven seven three five one zero three zero zero.
2: Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. dot com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. dot com. In late two
1: thousand and eight a man who called himself Khalid Mohammed began to show up at activist events around Guelph. His real name was Bindo Showan, and like Brenda Carey, he was an OPP officer. By January, he started attending meetings of an anti-development organization called Land is More Important Than Sprawl, or Limits for short. At the time, Limits was opposing the construction of a new business park on a piece of provincial wetland.
6: I would say probably just personality-wise, not a great fit with the group that he initially tried to infiltrate in Guelph. Just a really different sort of personality from most of the people who were working on the ground there.
1: That's Andrea Bennett. They're a journalist and author who wrote about the G20 undercover operation for Mesa Neuve magazine.
6: From what people described to me, he seemed a little bit almost bro-y, like really outgoing Maybe the center of attention in the room, perhaps whether he meant to be or not. He would perhaps drive or lead a conversation, sometimes would joke about how they were going to burn the machinery down, which was not actually a goal of that group at all.
1: People were suspicious of Bindo from the beginning. When Limits organized an occupation of the construction site in the summer, they didn't invite the older newcomer.
6: The activists had spoken to each other in person and using payphones and stuff like that. And they kept him out of the loop because they thought he was a cop.
1: Eventually, Bindo found out about it and showed up anyways.
6: He had shown up to the occupation after it happened, sort of found out about it later. He showed up with two two-fours, so a bunch of beer. I mean, it's not like people in Guelph, those activists, it's not like they were all teetotalers, but probably they weren't drinking on the site of the environmental occupation. So showing up with 224s of beer and saying, like, let's burn this place down, just didn't go over very well.
1: According to Limits members, the undercover OBP officer kept insisting that they destroy the construction machinery at the site.
6: I think it set off alarm bells when he had suggested the destruction of some of the construction machinery that was located there. That just wasn't part of the tactics that the, that the group was wanting to use.
1: On day two of the occupation, he was asked to leave, and he never came back. Instead, Bindo Shoan made his way to Kitchener and Waterloo.
3: We kind of picked up Bindo Shoan doing work with folks in Guelph. So he had been kicked out of an occupation there and ended up kind of finding refuge in our group.
1: That's Alex Hundred. At the time, he was involved in a number of different radical organizations in southern Ontario, including an anti-war and indigenous solidarity group called AWOL.
3: He dressed like a guy who worked on a construction site, which was his story. You know, he seemed like a working class guy who had developed, you know, a political consciousness through the process of being a racialized working class person, which makes a lot of sense. It's a very reasonable path. And to some extent, his lack of experience and lack of having kind of been around accounted for some of the ridiculous suggestions, like over-the-top suggestions he would make sometimes. But he was pretty normal, down-to-earth-ish guy. He was pretty reliable.
1: Bindo found ways to make himself useful. He had a van, so he would drive people around, and he would often buy people beer, which inured him to a lot of the students who didn't have much money.
3: What I do remember is that he seemed very out of place. At the time, uh, the anarchist groups in southern Ontario that we were a part of were
1: predominantly young and white. And Alex says that Bindo used that fact to his advantage. The anarchist and leftist scenes in southern Ontario are relatively small, so a lot of people know each other. It wasn't long before the folks in Kitchener heard that Bindo had been kicked out of a group in Guelph.
2: But
3: then when he came to Kitchener, kind of telling a story of like, yeah, I haven't had problems in Guelph, but that there being some like unintentional racism being at the root of those problems, when we went back around and asked the other people of color who had been there, they confirmed those stories of, you know, unintentional racism. So I remember a friend of mine being like, you know, like, Not that I'm holding it against anyone, but yeah, of course they're being racist. It's a bunch of white kids in their mid-20s with aggressive politics.
6: So when Bindo Showen showed up in Kitchener-Waterloo and said, like, these snotty white university kids kicked me out of their group because I'm old and I talk crazy. In Kitchener-Waterloo, they were like, oh, yeah, they're snobby. So sorry that happened to you type of thing. So, Schoen was able to infiltrate more effectively in Kitchener-Waterloo.
1: Despite that, Alex says that he was always a little wary of Bindo. I always got a
3: bit of a weird feeling from him, and I always kept him to some degree at, at a personal arm's length. I wasn't one of the people who developed a close personal relationship with him or the other undercover in part because I was running around so much and just wasn't in town as often.
1: But Bindo was able to get very close to some of the people in Kitchener, including a man named Julian Akim. Here's Akim talking about it on CBC's The Current in 2013.
0: He would show concern for myself and my health. He would show concern for my mom, who was sick at that point in time in her life. And he would do things that weren't necessarily political but more friendly, like drive me to the hospital, drive a single mom to see her kids in CAS custody, that sort of thing. I still have trust issues right now. Uh, I'm still very open and honest, but I do think that in the back of my mind that anyone I talk to could be a cop.
1: Back in Guelph, Brenda Carey wasn't raising any suspicions.
6: And when she arrived, I think probably personality wise was almost a complete opposite of Bindo Shoen She's pretty soft spoken. If you've ever been in an activist space, you've seen those posters or sometimes they're like tea towels that say everybody wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. Brenda Carey would do the dishes. So, you know, she's doing note taking. But I think that she was in some ways more successful than Bindo because because of the soft-spokenness. She's also a white woman in her mid-30s, and she came with a story of having just survived domestic abuse, and people are less willing to push on that when that's given as a backstory.
1: Like Bindo, Brenda also joined LIMITS, the anti-development group. But unlike Bindo, she successfully stayed involved and was invited to the occupation.
6: So she was there with the Limits folks staying on site. And at the end of that occupation, the activists felt like they had won because the development company wasn't going to go ahead at that very point in time. And they all went skinny dipping in the Speed River to celebrate. And the undercover cop ended up joining them, skinny dipping in the river.
1: As Bindo and Brenda were embedding themselves within these activist networks, Mandy Hiscox, Alex Hundert, and many others were beginning to come together for the G20. International summits like the G20 provide a big platform to make a statement. They're opportunities for activists who work on different issues to converge around a common
2: cause. For the first few months of organizing, we had big meetings that were kind of like, but like our principles and like figuring out the days and like the main issues and like, you know, just stuff like that. And then At one point, we would have broken into committees.
1: This kind of large-scale activism is often interpreted as potentially threatening by security agencies, and the police had been doing their own organizing in anticipation of the G20. Bindo and Brenda were part of that, but they weren't the only undercovers at work in the lead-up to the summit.
0: At
4: some point, the government decided that if they're going to do the G8 summit, they needed a security unit to do it.
1: That's Tim Groves. He's an investigative researcher and journalist who reported on the undercover operations. Before the G8 summit, which was to be held in Huntsville, and the G20 summit planned to take place in Toronto shortly after, a number of different police forces were brought together, including the RCMP, the OPP, the Toronto Police, alongside other municipal forces.
4: And so part of the security apparatus became conducting intelligence. And that was run by a group called the Joint
1: Intelligence Group. And under this Joint Intelligence Group, there was a more specialized unit called the Primary Intelligence Investigative Team, or PIT.
4: And this was the group that was sort of charged with gathering intelligence through things like undercover operations. And so this was a team that sort of placed officers, investigators into activist groups and other organizations, and sort of had them be in either for a matter of weeks or a matter of months, living and building relationships within these organizations.
1: In total, there were 12 different officers who were sent undercover.
4: 12 different people going in and doing this stuff means that, you know, hundreds of people interacted with people who were posing as activists.
1: Bindo and Brenda are the only two undercovers whose names we know for sure. But after the G20, Tim Groves investigated the extent of the undercover operation, and he spoke to people involved in a range of organizations who came to believe that they had been infiltrated. Now, we don't have the details on these alleged undercovers. We only know about Brenda and Bindo because they gathered evidence that eventually led to criminal charges. But here's the kind of organizations that Tim believes had undercover cops inside of them.
4: There were operators who infiltrated a group of uh, medics that were trying to support people who would get tear gassed or pepper sprayed or whatever medical emergencies came up during protests. That a bunch of uh, people, including lawyers, set up a group of legal observers and that an undercover joined that organization there was someone who infiltrated this uh, environmental justice group and I don't know what their sexual orientation in reality, but they presented as a lesbian and flirted profusely with straight women. And I spoke to over half a dozen different women who thought that this person was singularly flirting with them and had a huge crush on them. And so definitely was using sex and like maybe didn't have sex with anyone, but, um, was like using flirtation and these sorts of things as part of their techniques to get close to people. And this included uh, one story I heard that this person went to a uh, sex club with people. The story wasn't that they had sex with anyone at the sex club, but that they had gone with people to it.
1: And then there was Greenpeace.
4: There was something different about this story compared to all the other organizations. What had happened is that this person had worked with Greenpeace a few years earlier on a, a logging blockade. And so they had been around and then they you know, said, oh, I have to move away and move to my family. And, and so they left. And then two months before the G20, they showed back up and they'd already built relationships. And people say, well, we know we can trust this person because we've known them for two years.
1: During the G20, Tim Groves was working at a media center that had been set up for investigative journalists and outlets to cover the events. And a rumor started to spread that someone there was a police officer.
4: A few people involved decided that the the best way to handle this was not to um, accuse this person or kick them out, but to quietly talk to them and ask them to uh, limit the responsibilities they do so that they would not be the one with the password to the email account. This person who had been suspected did agree to that. And then the rumor spread further and more people started hearing it and they decided they didn't feel safe and they left. And the word is that they actually were a police officer, but like the point isn't whether or not they were or weren't. It's that as these suspicions grow and you start seeing people pointing fingers at people who may not be police officers. And I think it's very easy to spread a rumor that someone is a police officer. It's a tactic that, you know, police and intelligence and spy agencies use to snitch jacket people to, you know, make someone like plant information to say this person is an undercover.
1: As the G20 grew closer, both the police and the activists were ramping up their efforts. A number of activist groups and nonprofits created the Toronto Community Mobilization Network to coordinate their activities. And both Brenda and Bindo found ways to get involved. Terence Luscombe was one of the activists who got deeply involved in that organizing effort. He found himself on the Logistics Committee.
0: And basically my dominant task was figuring out how and where to house the many, many, many people who were planning on coming into the city. I continue to think that uh, the organizers who were involved in that were the best bureaucrats I've ever dealt with, way better than any government bureaucratic system. So a lot of it is bureaucracy.
1: Brenda Carey joined the logistics committee alongside Terrence. He says she didn't do much of the heavy lifting, but there was one task she was always volunteering
0: for. She was always there to take notes, though. She always took notes. (laughs) She was always the note taker. She was very nice, soft spoken, really like not imposing, and generally pleasant.
1: He didn't get particularly close to her, but they did talk on occasion.
0: I do remember a conversation with her in a car once where she sort of outlined in vague detail that she was effectively fleeing an abusive relationship. It was a bit like, oh, I didn't know we were in that place, but, <laughs> you know, it's not a problem to have that conversation.
1: Terrence met Bindo Shoan as well, though he knew him by his alias Khalid Muhammad.
0: He didn't even attempt, really, uh, an activist garb, as far as I can recall in my interactions with him. He was just a jeans and t-shirt kind of guy.
1: One day after a meeting, Terrence, Bindo, and Alex Hundert all went to a local Toronto bar.
0: I don't think I was planning on staying too long. And Khalid either was there or, or sort of interjected into the conversation. He was really, He was really hyped up, really sort of excited, and was like, saying like, hey, you guys want some drinks? You guys want some drinks? It's on me. It's totally fine. Like, here, come on. And I'm like, no, no. He's like, you sure? you sure? Come on. It's on me. It's fine. His insistence was definitely struck me and stuck with me. And it definitely caused some, uh, caused my eyebrow to raise a bit and uh, to be cautious with him from that point on.
1: Plying people with booze was a tactic that Bindo had allegedly deployed in Guelph as well. Andrea Bennett spoke to a Limits activist named Matt Soltis, who said that Bindo would often try to take him out to a bar.
6: So Matt Soltis talked about turning down several invitations to go to the bar with Showen. eventually went once to satisfy his own curiosity. He said he ordered a half pint because he was really sort of aware of not wanting to imbibe around someone he was fairly sure, was an undercover cop. But then Bindo sort of had this charismatic personality in a way, so he kept flagging the server down and and ordering another round. And so Saltus said he did drink a little more than he intended to and shared a few things that he probably wouldn't have shared otherwise. Other people I talked to said that often what was extracted was simple gossip in a lot of cases.
1: But you have to remember that gossip is often what these undercover cops are after. Part of the point is to find out any information about who's involved in this activism. What are their relationships to each other? Are there tensions between people that can be exploited? People continued to be suspicious of Bindo Schoen.
3: I can't remember who said it, but someone said once to us, you're all stupid because you all know he's a cop and you're not doing anything about it. And yeah, I'll never forget that because it's true.
1: Eventually, just like in Guelph, Bindo was asked to leave.
3: There were a bunch of flags that various people raised. I think there were a lot of like very quiet conversations happening in groups of two or three. And then he tried to show up at a meeting that he wasn't supposed to be at. Like he wasn't the representative for his little group. And he tried to show up and we were just like, nah, go home. And everybody, you know, deleted them from their phones. We were just like, nah, that's, you know, all right, that's enough of that.
1: But once again, Brenda Carey remained on the inside. The G20 summit was set to take place on the last weekend of June. As the summit drew ever closer, numerous groups were in the midst of organizing marches and protests. And the police and the government were preparing for thousands of people to take to the streets of Toronto. Here's Mandy Hiscox again.
2: So there was, you know, marches that were about the environment. There were marches that were about gender and people were going there because they had issues with specific things that the G20 were going to be talking about. So, for example, I think one big thing that a lot of people in the sort of um, NGO world were concerned about was this idea that aid wouldn't be given to countries that were allowing abortion.
1: Most of these demonstrations were intended to be fairly straightforward. Others were more unconventional.
2: So part of that and part of the thing that I was involved in was a march called Get Off the Fence.
1: The fence referred to the more than six kilometers of steel wire barrier the police were erecting around the Metro Convention Center, where the G20 was set to meet. It became a symbol and a target. The Get Off the Fence march would not be like the others. It would involve what's known in activist circles as a diversity of tactics. To put it another way, some people were planning to break shit, and that was factored into the organizing of the protest.
2: Our philosophy, or mine anyway, was that people are going to come. This is like a classic summit event. People are going to come. They're going to march in the streets. They're going to want to defend themselves against cops if that happens, and maybe things are going to get broken because that is what happens at these things. It happens in Seattle, Washington, and Windsor, like in Quebec City.
1: This is controversial stuff, even in radical circles. Some people believe that it only invites more police repression, putting other protesters in danger. Others think that property damage is one of the few tactics that will actually get the attention of authorities.
2: The tradition is that there's a black block and things get broken. And so we were like, people are going to do that, but we want them to do it in a place where there also aren't like children or people that have no desire to be a part of anything like that. So we're like, we'll create a space for that. There was a whole bunch of different people in the group, but the thing that united everyone was it's going to happen. And there needs to be a space where it can happen more safely and doesn't endanger other people.
1: Alex Hundert was also helping plan the -the get-off-the-fence march. And he frames it all in a different way.
3: We were blatantly planning a riot. Like, the riot was supposed to happen. We wanted a big riot, and we planned a big riot. And there's no way that was
1: legal. But he points out that the police didn't need undercover officers to figure that out. Everybody knew we were doing it. it. It wasn't a secret. Like,
3: I had a radio show under my own name where we were telling people to come to the riot and explaining why they should do it and where people could, like, find resources on how to do it better.
1: The Friday night before the protest was set to take place, a number of activists, including Mandy Hiscox and Alex Hundert, gathered at a community center to finalize plans. They took the batteries out of their phones in case the police were surveilling them. But their precautions were useless. Brenda Carey was in the meeting, and she was recording everything. The undercover OPP officer captured people on tape talking about everything from a plan for a queer dance party to debates over how people who were planning on rioting should evade the police. That night, Mandy Hiscox was staying with Alex Hundert and his partner.
2: I don't know what time it was, like two or three in the morning. I like hadn't gone to sleep yet because that's really smart when you have a big thing the next day to like not go to sleep. So we were still awake and I heard like a a really loud noise at the door like I think I was kind of drifting off to sleep. In my mind I was like oh who's coming by so late and I thought it was somebody from our group and then the next minute like this battering ram comes through the door and all these cops come in and there's like a red dot like a laser pointer on the wall It was quite dramatic,
3: very like one of those moments where you look around and you're like, oh, I'm feels like I'm living in a movie.
2: And I remember being in that you know that thing that happens when your mind really slows down
3: The door came flying off the hinges bunch of big dudes in, you know, not in uniform the first guys through the door but, you know, assault rifles with laser sights, yelling and screaming.
2: And then they were yelling, you know, get down on the ground, down on the ground, hands on your head. They were all over. They had bulletproof vests on some of them. You know, they had guns out. It was quite the thing.
3: It's the first time I've ever had a machine gun pointed at me. Like, I've been arrested a whole bunch of times. I've been in things that you might call a raid of, like, a blockade site and stuff like that. But this was the Toronto Police, Gangs and Guns Unit, right? It is meant to be very scary, and it, it wasn't not scary. It was, it was kind of surreal uh, at the same time, in part because as it was happening, my brain was like, how stupid am I to be in my own house tonight? Like, what was I thinking? Of course this happened.
2: I was on the ground, um, there was another person in the room, and then there was another person like down the hall in, in another room. So we all eventually were in the living room. There was just like cops everywhere. And then they had they had a stack of papers and they were arrest warrants. So they were basically looking through the stack. So they came for specific people. And all three of us in the house were on the list.
1: The police had shut down four city blocks to make these arrests. Terrence Luscombe was at home when he heard
0: the news. I woke up with a phone call. Like early Saturday morning from uh, friends who are like, our house was just raided and your name's on the warrant. My thought was that just that this was a preemptive like roundup. I specifically called my parents and was like, so this is happening. I'm not too worried about it. I don't think you should be worried about it. But just in case, like, I think this is just preemptive. So, me and my, uh, my partner at the time, uh, who was also one of the named co conspirators, we actually turned ourselves in.
1: Alongside Mandy, Alex, and Terrence. 14 other people were arrested. They were charged with conspiracy, a law usually applied to groups like the Mafia. Mandy and Alex were portrayed as the ringleaders of this conspiracy. Despite the raids and the arrests, the Black Bloc still showed up to the riot that day. Adrian Morrow is a reporter from the Globe and Mail, and he was covering the G20 when it happened.
7: I remember around uh, Queen and a big red flare shot up, and uh, a group of people all sort of dressed in black. I think a few hundred, if I'm remembering correctly, sort of split off from the the march and kind of went back down Queen Street. And for about the next 90 minutes, went along you know Queen Street and then and then Bay Street.
2: It's gotten extremely violent down
3: here. We've got protest groups that are not just protesting; they are throwing bottles, they're
4: throwing pool balls, they are breaking windows, they are coming after the media.
7: Smashed up a bunch of corporate businesses, they smashed up a bunch of the bank towers, uh, windows and stuff like that, set fire to multiple police cars.
5: There is a police car on fire, what appears to be in the middle of the intersection right now, casting a pall of thick black smoke, really an
7: ominous scene. And then proceeded to Young, and then up Young Street, you know, again, you know, smashing very little sort of police interference, as I recall, you know, as that was going. And, and later on, the Toronto police would say that they were sort of totally outmaneuvered and couldn't get themselves into place quickly enough to, to stop any of, of what was happening. At the point that they got to Queen's Park, there were still, as I recall, there were other protesters there who hadn't taken part in, in the smashing windows and, and setting fire to police cars. And these, these protesters who had been all sort of dressed in black as they were they're doing this um, this vandalism spree sort of blended into the crowd, you know, shed their sort of black clothes and then, and then tried to sort of disperse.
1: Multiple police forces had spent millions of dollars sending undercover agents to infiltrate numerous activist groups around Canada. Some had spent more than a year undercover. They arrested 17 people, charged them all with conspiracy, all ostensibly to stop a riot that happened anyways.
3: By the time the riot was actually happening, I was in the basement of the Finch courthouse. And one of the lawyers came down and was just like, it's bad, it's bad. There's injuries on both sides. And I was like, well, I guess they're not going to be able to say I did this and I was wrong. They did.
2: I think they gave us a lot of credit for our organizing capacities, which is flattering. Those things that happened were not organized by us. They were going to happen and they did happen. We would be really flattering ourselves to think that we were needed for any of that to happen.
1: One of the main pieces of evidence used against the alleged conspirators was a quote unquote target list, that Alex and Mandy helped create.
3: It was really just a list, well, granted, there was a map attached to it, but of institutions and fronts for institutions or corporations that were tied directly into the austerity agenda.
1: That list had been partially constructed by Brenda Carey, the undercover OPP officer. Because of the nature of a conspiracy charge, some of the people were charged with things that they had no idea about.
0: This conspiracy case, like I said, in the G20, it really felt like like things were being like sewn together that we were just like baffled by. <laughs> we were like, how, how can I be responsible for this thing that happened two towns over when I wasn't even, I wasn't there. I didn't participate in any way, shape or form. To me, it felt like, you know, the classic, like, conspiracy theory corkboard, right? With some, like, photos of this person, this person, and, like, you know, yarn strung up between them.
1: Alex Hundert believes that he was breaking the law, but he says that many of his co-accused definitely weren't. But There are certainly people
3: who were charged in the conspiracy who were not part of planning the riot. Like, straight up, just like, they charge people who weren't part of that part of the bigger thing.
1: None of this went to trial. After a year of legal proceedings, Mandy Hiscox and Alex Hundert pled guilty to counseling mischief and counseling to obstruct police. Four other people pled guilty to counseling mischief. In exchange, the charges against everyone else, including Terrence Luscombe, were dropped.
2: You know, it didn't turn out perfectly for everybody, but I'm really proud of the way that we conducted that, where nobody threw anyone else under the bus, which is what they want in conspiracy trials.
1: One of the things that has stuck with Mandy the most is how the Crown portrayed them throughout their legal proceedings.
2: They straight up in the court called us terrorists. And then in our preliminary inquiry, we had not just the metal detector into the courthouse, but also the metal detector, an extra one that was set up between the two doors into the courtroom. So in case, you know, we managed to, like, go get our gun that we had stashed in the potted plant the day before, then, you know, like, it was just, like, so outrageous. And it's, it's still hard for me to know if that was a show or if it was actually something that they had concern about.
1: They were charged, essentially, with plotting to break windows but the Crown was treating them like terrorists who were planning on killing people. One of the charges against Alex stemmed from workshops he ran on how to de-arrest people.
3: But the vast majority of the arrests that weekend were illegal, and people have a constitutional right to resist unlawful arrests, so why can't I teach people how to do that?
1: Bindo Shoan, one of the two undercover officers that had worked their way into the lives of these activists, testified at the preliminary inquiry.
2: I do remember from the preliminary inquiry when he was testifying on the stand that, you know, he took a lot of notes and his notes were very, very selective. Like, they really made us look (laughs) pretty terrifying. His, like, preliminary inquiry testimony was, like, pretty laughable at a lot of points. And I always wondered about him whether he actually... Thought the things that he was writing down. I wish I could ask him. I've always just wanted to be like, what did you really think about us? You know, like, did you really think that the things that you said on the stand were really true? He didn't meet our eyes, and I would like to think that that was because he was ashamed, but I have no idea why. And that's the only time I ever saw either of them again.
1: We contacted the OPP to see if either Bindo Showen or Brenda Carey were interested in commenting on this story and we never heard back. Mandy Hiscox and Alex Hundert both served around a year in jail time. As Tim Groves was reporting on these undercover operations, he noticed the impact they'd had on the activist community in southern Ontario. A lot of people would approach him, convinced that they were being surveilled.
4: The number of people who think that after the G20, six months later, a year later, two years later, that they're being followed every day, like... I think like it's possible that some of them were true, but my sense is that a lot of people were in a situation where they thought that police were following them everywhere they go at all times and their phone was tapped. And I think a lot of that was stuff that just existed in people's head because they have been traumatized in this much. And like everyone have a different imagination of how big the iceberg below the surface is. And for some people they imagine it's so big that it is, immobilizing.
1: But Mandy and Alex drew different lessons. They remained defiant, arguing that even if some of what they did was illegal, it wasn't wrong or unjustified. And they continued their activism after they got out of jail. They both say that they're not overly concerned with undercovers or surveillance.
2: You know, if there are hundreds of groups doing organizing around the country and, you know, there's a couple of undercovers and a couple of groups go down, there's still all these other groups doing stuff. But if everyone stops doing anything because they're afraid of being infiltrated, then we have nothing. And then basically, like the state has one.
3: It has convinced me in the value of doing things as openly as possible, having as few secrets, you know, as, as humanly possible. Trying to beat the surveillance state at its own game is not the winning strategy. The winning strategy is. Being right and having convictions and hoping people will see that.
1: We still don't know exactly why these police agencies decided to infiltrate these activist organizations' and networks. But I find it hard to believe that all of their time and money was justified. The undercover agents discovered a loose plot to destroy property at the G20. And despite the arrests, they still couldn't prevent the riot. And in exchange, hundreds of people who were involved in all kinds of civic activism had their privacy violated by the police. It's almost certain that dossiers were created documenting the personal details and petty grievances of people who never intended on committing any major crimes. In the early 1900s, the cops were infiltrating communists and union organizers on the prairies, In the 1970s, it was Black and Quebecois nationalists. Today, their targets might be different, but the tactics haven't changed. Five years after the G20, Terence Luscombe heard a familiar story. Some friends of his were involved in an anti-mining group that was planning protests for the Pan Am Games in Toronto. And two people started coming to their meetings. Their names were Kat and Alex. And the other members of the group were convinced they were cops. They said they were new to activism. They were very interested in the tactics the group utilized. Alex was boisterous and a bit overbearing. And Kat had a story of fleeing domestic abuse. Both were naive about activism. It was just like Bindo and
0: Brenda. Their demeanors were were very much, I think, one of the, the really key pieces that made it feel like, wow, I'm dealing with the same character.
1: After some research, Terrence came to the conclusion that his friends were right. Kat and Alex were cops. So they set up a little sting.
0: It was a little bit fun, I, I will admit that. It's so, so, like, so uncommon to ever feel like, you know, when it comes to the police, that, you know, you're in control of a situation.
1: The group confronted the two who denied that they were cops to the very end. A Globe and Mail reporter looked into their identities and was able to determine that at the very least, Kat and Alex weren't who they claimed to be. Terence says that the anti-mining group wasn't involved in anything illegal. And he believes that the police didn't think so either.
0: The thing about these intelligence gathering operations is every person they come in contact to where they get a name, that becomes a dossier. And you have no idea. You have no idea what that could wrap you up in at the end of the day because these things are or can very well be guilt by association.
1: On the next episode of Commons, we're going to continue our examination of the G20. We'll be telling you about those mass arrests, the kettling, and the wide-scale police oppression that took place over that weekend in 2010. That's your episode of Commons for the week. If you want to support us, click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode relied on reporting done by Andrea Bennett at Maisonneuve, Adrian Morrow and Kim Mackerel at The Globe and Mail, Peter Smalls at The Toronto Star, the staff of CBC's The Current, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi, at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish with additional production by Lola Oname. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com.